The New Testament lesson is from Ephesians. I will just start reading at the beginning, even though our focus here is uh, really the second half of this opening blessing. Verse 3 to 14, one long extended thought in the mind of the apostle as he blesses God, uh, who is the king, for the blessings he has showered upon his people. And we read so beautifully in Psalm 68, and we heard about that royal uh, glory and victory march that in Christ, really begins on Palm Sunday. And then he is enthroned on the cross and ascends into glory in heaven. Um, There are two points here where I will be referring to a slightly different translation, focusing on the Messiah, um, because I believe that this passage teaches us that Jesus Christ rules and reigns in glory. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ." As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in the Messiah, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in the Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Join me now in our prayer for illumination, which you can find in your worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and ask you to give us your spirit, so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in that prayer, we asked for God's spirit, um, that we could understand this great truth of the gospel, which we read about so beautifully pictured in this passage. Last week, we saw that Paul's opening blessing in the Ephesians, his his praises of God was centered on what the Father had done in Christ and through the Spirit. It pivots around uh, this revelation, uh, what we saw in verse 10, a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in, in the Messiah, things in heaven and on earth. It pivots around the Messiah. So it looks back to what God, before the foundation of the world, chose and predestined and elected and planned and determined by the counsel of His goodwill. 
But it moves from the Christ event, the event which we celebrate in the coming week, to the work of Christ in the church through His Spirit. And so it goes to eternity past and forward to eternity future. And it leaves for us a very Trinitarian picture. The Father loved us in the Son. The Son came and bled and died and redeemed us. And the Spirit reveals and applies and obtains and guarantees the first fruits of our heavenly inheritance. Even today, all three of these persons work together. This is uh, the grace and peace which Paul announces on behalf of Christ for us today. The gifts of God for the people of God. The peace of God for us. And so I want to look at, at three elements, kind of part two from last week. So last week we focused on the Father's plan coming to fruition in the Son. And this week we begin with the Messiah's arrival at the fullness of time and the Spirit's work, not only in the preaching of the Word, creating faith in us, but His work of sealing and guaranteeing, which I think points us as well to the sacraments. Paul is writing to encourage and comfort believers in Ephesus. Remember, he's writing from prison in Rome. They haven't seen him for some seven or eight years. Maybe wolves have come in, as he warned, when he met with those Ephesian elders the last time on the beach in Miletus. Um, and Paul, as he, uh, as Luke rather, closes the book of Acts with that picture of Paul in, in Rome preaching What does Luke say? Preaching the kingdom of God in boldness and without hindrance, though he is in chains, though he is in prison. And he writes from prison. This letter is a proclamation of that kingdom of the Messiah going forth without hindrance. The world's opposition, the spiritual warfare it it wages against King Jesus and against his people is not a reason to doubt that our Lord reigns. But it is a reminder that His gospel work is present and advancing in the world. And this is why God laid that deep foundation and why why Paul proclaimed the deep foundation in eternity past. What we see as chaotic in the world in which we inhabit is all according to God's plan. Yes, sin and wickedness is our own, but God knew it would be. And he works in spite of it to accomplish his purposes. Now, sometimes Reformed believers get kind of hung up in these abstractions. Election and predestination. And I am uh, confess that I'm guilty of this. Or I was once upon a time guilty of this. I, I actually came to the Reformed faith in college because I was uh, trying to figure out the doctrine of predestination. And I was writing an honors thesis. And that led me to Luther and Calvin and the Protestant Reformation. But what I have learned in spades in the roughly 30 years since then is that the Reformed Church is really a biblical message and a message that focuses on Christ, even as Paul's gospel here focuses on Christ and His Holy Spirit. Yes, the Father's electing grace is foundational. But we come and know this grace and this love and this mercy through Christ and by His Spirit. So there, there is an equal focus in Paul in what God is doing today. God the Son in Jesus, ruling and reigning in heaven. God the Spirit dwelling within us as a holy temple. And so that's what I want to, to focus on today and to, uh, 
if we have any temptations as Reformed believers to flee to the abstract, to, to turn now to the concrete, to how God is here in our midst. And first I want to look at the, the Messiah's arrival at the fullness of time. Paul begins to pivot here, already in verse 7, when he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Elsewhere, Paul says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. He says, my preaching ministry, I I promised, I, I took an oath that I would know nothing, speaking hyperbolically, right? I would know nothing but Jesus and His cross. And that's what we see in this blessing. The redemption we have through the blood of Christ. God's plan to make us blameless and holy required Him to send His eternally begotten Son to take on human flesh and to bleed for us at Calvary. To redeem, of course, is to purchase or to buy. And the same language uh, could be used for purchasing a slave out of a marketplace. It uh, was often used to redeem a hostage. And that might seem like a a very rare occurrence today, but in an ancient world full of city-states constantly at war, you know, you would capture the opposing army's general or, or maybe their king or prince, and you would require payment to get him back. We see this in the pages of Scripture. That was a redemption. And this is the why Paul is speaking about the riches of God's grace. We saw last week that, that Ephesus was uh, literally there in the temple of Artemis, Ephesia, was the bank for all Asia. Entire kingdoms and city-states stored their wealth there. Surely they knew what it meant to lavish riches and to redeem. But here the riches that are lavished upon us, extravagantly spent, are the riches of God's grace. God's grace. Sometimes we hear it kicked around a lot today that, that right, God loves us. God is love. He's nothing but love. He loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If God is so loving, though, why did He have to send His own Son to the cross? And the fact of the matter is that His love must conquer death, must conquer sin and the curse for our sin. And He does that through sending His Son. In, in Romans 5, Paul talks about the fact that sometimes someone would sacrifice even their own life for a dear friend. We hear of a soldier, you know, taking a bullet, falling on a grenade, so his buddy, his friend, could go home to a family and his kids. Perhaps, you know, you've heard of those in this city who protect the president and other high officials, that they will take a bullet, right? But the riches of God's grace are demonstrated and that Jesus Christ laid down His life for the enemy soldiers. That while we were still at enmity with Him, He bought us out of prison and redeemed us with His blood. It's a mysterious ransom to pay, is it not? That's God's grace. It's not just favor we don't deserve. It's favor when we deserve disfavor. (laughs) It's demerited favor. We aren't inclined to lay down our own lives to sacrifice for murderers and thieves. I don't know about you, but when I heard that a school was shot up, immediately my mind, with much of the hive mind of social media, went to the shooter and and their, their crimes, their monstrosity, the hatred... My first impulse 
wasn't Christ. It wasn't Father, forgive them. But God loved us and gave his own son when we were thieves and murderers. God, rich in love, sent his son to die for ones who tried to kill him. Even the ones who drove the nails in his hands. That's the mystery of his grace. Do you know love like that? I don't know about you, but um, a lot of my life is trying to overcome the impulse to to hold on to grudges. (laughs) To struggle. To truly forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And we read here that, that God's plan hatched in his brain in eternity past based on, alone on his love. Based alone on his goodness. Not on anything good or lovely in us. His plan didn't remain secret. It was revealed. It was made known. It was set forth in the God-man, in Jesus Christ. As a, a plan for the fullness of time. This really... Uh, Central thesis here is that God is summing up all things. Shootings, carjackings, wars, drone strikes, divorce, cancer, dementia. God is summing up all things in His beloved Son. Who is King and rules and reigns over all things. The language here is is of administering, as it were, a household. We're sort of Downton Abbey fans in my house. You think of Carson the butler, right? And when the the royal family comes to visit, it's the beginning of every show, right? They have a, a ruler and he's measuring where the place setting goes. Every fork, every knife. So many inches from the center point. And everything is perfect, right? God made a perfect plan and Jesus Christ is administering it. Not for superficial purposes, not for appearances only. But for his holiness, for his justice, for his love. This is the fullness of time. All history reaches its climax. And it's set forth in the king. This is the royal visit. The king himself comes and puts things in order. That's what we remember at Mark this Palm Sunday, is it not? That language we heard of Psalm 68 of God as this great warrior conquering all. And those crowds oppressed, poor, under Roman oppression. Had come to finally realize that Jesus was their king. As he came in, not in glory, but on a donkey. No doubt causing them to wonder how he was actually going to conquer the Roman armies riding on a donkey. Set that aside for now. Their confusion would be clear later in the week. But so excited they sang Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. People are healed. Disease, Lazarus, raised from the dead. His own friend came from the tomb, not stinking, but alive. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. You are my God. I will praise you. You are my God. And John in his gospel says that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, as it were like a throne, he would draw all people to him. That's because he bled for all people. 
In our catechism lesson this morning, we read from 1 Timothy 2. God desires all people to come and know the salvation in Christ. Has He elected all people? Has He predestined all people? I don't know the mind of God. I know that He has not. I don't know which people He has loved in Christ. And I know that His grace and mercy is able to save all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we pray for all. We bear witness to all. Paul uses this title, Christ, which by this time has come to become the name, our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in the first verse. But sometimes he also uses Christ with an article. I know, pastor's getting geeky on grammar again. But he talks about the Christ. And I believe, along with uh, my New Testament professor of many years ago, that when Paul uses the Christ... He's talking about the Messiah. This is how the anointed Messiah in all of those Psalms was translated. The Lord's anointed is the King. And that's what Paul's blessing here really focuses on. God sent the King at just the right time. Jesus is the Christ. The anointed. The stone the builders rejected. The cornerstone. And Paul is preaching the kingdom of God. Sometimes we speak of uh, presidencies as administrations. Once upon a time I worked in the Bush administration. Some of you may have worked in the Biden or Trump administrations. And what Paul is telling us uh, right now is that the last and final and only administration that matters is the Christ administration. The Jesus administration. He is administering, that's the word he uses, all things. And that's the administration we're living under. For today and forever. It is a cosmic, global rule and reign of grace. And the kings of the earth may lift their heads. They may mock and taunt and shout. But he's throned in glory. It's going to last a lot longer than four years. It's the most effective administration ever. He works all things according to the plan of his will, despite the resistance he finds in our hearts. Indeed, we can say, as Paul says here, that we have obtained an inheritance according to his purposes. Now, this is a covenantal language. Another word for covenant is a testament. We've recently had a death in my wife's family. And a part of a death is sorting through the the messy business of, of wills and documents and things like that. Paul writes that we have obtained an inheritance. And that means it is as if you have a long lost aunt or uncle perhaps. And you get a phone call saying your name was in the will. Something has been left to you. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the blood of Christ, the blood of the eternal covenant has sealed this blessing to you. And you are going to inherit And in this case, it's a room in your Heavenly Father's mansion, which Jesus has gone to prepare for you. It's peace and grace and eternal rest in Him. But you notice also that He says that that He is the guarantee, the Holy Spirit, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but we're going to transition here to the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We don't have it yet. What you have gotten is the news that you are in the will But your uncle's still alive. You're happy he's alive, right? That's a good thing. 
But you will acquire an inheritance. It's a guaranteed thing. So God's plan from eternity past comes to completion and fulfillment on the cross where that blood of the eternal covenant, the blood that forgives you of your trespasses and sins, makes you, adopts you as a son, a child, a prince, a princess in this royal household. And the inheritance is assured. Now, so God's eternal plan in his mind that we can't see or don't have access to became real in Christ. But it also becomes real to us when Christ sends forth his spirit in the Pentecost and in the church. Remember, our blessing began by speaking of every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places, back in verse 3. And it closes by talking about the Spirit, those who are being sealed with the promised Spirit of holiness, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it, until we come into our inheritance. And in this present time of suffering, before we obtain that glorious rule and reign, the Spirit sustains us and nourishes us with the glorious blessings of heaven itself. He feeds us with the bread of heaven. Pretend you know you're going to inherit this great wealth, but not for another time and time. Maybe you eat some ramen. Maybe you live in an attic above someone's house. Maybe you rent a basement on Capitol Hill. You live like a poor person. You suffer. But it's... This is a bad analogy. This is why I shouldn't come up with analogies on the fly. But like, but the Spirit delivers like Uber Eats, right? The Spirit delivers these five-star meals to you. And as I was reminded in our conference this last week, Craig Troxell, who teaches practical theology at Westminster Seminary in California, he says, we think of the Spirit giving us a foretaste, this meal as a foretaste of, of our heavenly feast in Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said, that's okay, But it's not just a foretaste. It's a taste. This is heaven. The Spirit is bringing heaven down to earth. We don't have to wait. The Spirit makes known the mystery of His will. The will of God was made known in the coming of Jesus. And the Spirit was there. The Spirit was there. Uh, The angel told Zechariah that... John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came upon the virgin in the uh, conception of that child. And when Mary met her cousin Elizabeth, the Spirit-filled child in her womb, John the Baptist leapt within her. And he was full of the Spirit as Elizabeth became full of the Spirit. And Zechariah sang full of the Spirit. And Jesus grew and became strong in the Spirit. And the Spirit descended upon him in his baptism and equipped him for his ministry. And the first thing it did was send him out into the wilderness to do battle like Psalm 68. And how did he do battle? By knowing that Satan was full of lies. And by eating not bread, by suffering and dining and being Satisfied with the word of God. The promise. He knew that he had a royal inheritance. He knew he was his father's beloved. And he did not doubt. And he did not flag. And he did not fail. And here 
Paul speaks not not only of that spiritual work in Jesus, where it starts, but he speaks of the spirit that Jesus sent. He says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, the spirit of holiness is the one who works faith in the hearts of every believer. When you heard the word of truth, the good news that Jesus has saved you from death with his resurrection, the Spirit was working in you, sealing that truth to you. God's plan included not only the work of Jesus, but you, brothers and sisters, as his beloved children in Christ. Jesus was born of a woman under the law in the fullness of time. And you heard of that Christ and trusted in him. And he loved you. And he has a wonderful plan to give you life. This faith has accomplished something amazing in Ephesus. Again, this is the last time I promise I'll do grammar in this sermon. Throughout the passage, Paul has been speaking in the first person. Blessed be God who has blessed us. First person plural. Even as he chose us, he predestined us. Because the church in Ephesus is one. We'll see this in chapter 4. It is united by faith in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But I'm sure that some of the smart ones, probably children who are actually taking English grammar in school right now. Notice the transition here in verse 13. To the second person, plural. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth... The good news of your salvation were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Who is this you also that doesn't include the Apostle Paul? We could also translate it, even you. Even you, her. You know when you know a secret and you think you're like the only person that knows a secret and then someone comes up and tells you the same secret, you don't feel that important anymore? It's like, even you know. (laughs) I guess I'm not very special. The contrast here, the you also, you even you, is to the preceding verse. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And Paul is here signaling where he's going to go in chapter 2 and 3. Where he's going to talk about the great ministry of unification that Christ has wrought amongst people who were at war with each other. You know how America today, politically, is horribly polarized in these camps? To where hatred fills all of our dialogue. There's no conversation. There's no unity. The church in Ephesus had healed a rift greater than that. A divide between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus had a different and perhaps more radical, more transformational conversion experience wrought in them by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Jews came to know their Messiah in a profound way, and they received the Holy Spirit. But Paul will write in chapter 2, Remember that at that time, you, he's talking about the Gentiles, were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope, without God in the world. Maybe some of you have been there. I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know this blessing. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace. This is a very concrete peace. And I pray that we might know it today. 
As we could go out those doors and fight with each other about all sorts of policy differences, political differences. But I hope that we know the peace of Christ in this church. It is our calling, brothers and sisters. He has made, Paul continues, two groups, one. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The commands and regulations of the law that said, you're holy, you're wicked. Jesus says, I'm holy, you're all wicked. Find your holiness in me. And by faith, he makes one new man. Paul says, one new humanity is made out of two. To reconcile both of them to God through the cross. He came and preached peace to you who are far away. And peace to those who are near, to Gentiles and Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You see, God's election and predestination is nothing if the spirit doesn't come preach to you. And give you faith to believe that God loves you in Christ. In Acts 19 we read how when Paul first visited Ephesus. Some of the Gentiles had been baptized by Apollos. And it wasn't the baptism of Jesus. It was the baptism of John. Long story. I'll talk about that later. But when they received the baptism of Jesus. We read that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And that was a sign. A guarantee. That they were part of the one holy Catholic church. That same spirit is at work today. The world is at war with each other, with us, with everyone. But we have peace. We have the peace of Christ. We have God's truth in our hearts and in our hands. We should bring that truth to bear on all these conflicts. This is the gospel. Paul points not just to the Bible. There's a lot of truth in the Bible. There's God's holy law, his moral will. But this is the gospel, Christ crucified. That's the gospel of salvation. That news is what is the power of God to salvation. Not all truth is gospel truth. All truth is God's truth. But gospel truth saves sinners. Brings Christ to us and us to God in peace through the blood of the cross. Remember, the letter is addressed to holy ones who believe in Ephesus. Believers who are therefore holy in Ephesus. You believe because the Spirit gave you faith. Faith makes you holy. We are in Christ by faith because of His Spirit. And this brings us to this uh, really closing idea that the promised Spirit of holiness guarantees our future inheritance. If we come to saving faith through the preaching of the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, we are confirmed and strengthened in that faith by the guarantee of the Spirit. The Spirit here is called a down payment, a pledge. The Father planned our redemption in eternity past. He accomplished it in Christ. And He makes us participants and He confirms and guarantees every future blessing when He pledges His commitment. Genesis 38, perhaps you recall the story. Judah goes off the straight and narrow path and he visits a prostitute. And for payment of services, he says, I'll give you a goat, but I don't have a goat right now. So instead of my goat, I'll give you this little pledge. I'll give you my seal. Only I could have my seal. And so when I send my goat, I'll get my seal back. Well, when he goes back to pay, he realizes he's been sort of fooled by his sister, who's dressed as a prostitute. And so he says, well, I guess I've lost my seal. That's that. It was a pledge, a proof of his word. Later, when Judah wants to put this prostitute to death, the pledge is produced. 
Tamar, his sister, is the prostitute. It's proof of Judah's guilt, proof of her righteousness, relative righteousness. And this pledge saved Tamar's life. The Spirit is our pledge of God's word to us. You could also think of it as a down payment. Um, I think of myself as owning a home. It's in Alexandria. It's lovely. You should come sometime. I like having people over. Um, but it's not my home. It's owned by a bank. <laughs> the law says I have to pay the bank every month a certain amount of money because I signed a contract, a covenant to do so. And, and if I don't, the bank can take the house back because it belongs to them. But it's mine because I made a down payment. And I have paid so much money to that bank over the years, not only the down payment at the beginning, that I'm not going to walk away from that house. I am thoroughly invested in keeping that house. I would not pay the electric bill or the water bill. There are a lot of bills I wouldn't pay, and I would pay that mortgage to keep that house. Spirit is God's pledge and God's down payment. That we have been washed and purified and that he has begun a work that he will complete on the day of glory. This language, alongside the language of the preaching of the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. This is sacramental language. I don't think that Paul is talking about baptism here per se, necessarily. But we know that the sacraments are signs and seals of God's grace. We went to, uh, I think it was in Williamsburg, Virginia, when Claire was a little bit younger, you know, doing all the ye old colonial stuff. And you can get the little kit there, the little wax candle you burn and you buy a seal and you put it in the, in the seal. And the wax, we read about these seals being broken in the book of Revelation on the scrolls, right? They guarantee that the king himself, who is the only one that has that seal, saw what was written on that page. His eyes were on it and he, by the act of impressing his seal, actually touched the wax. He touched the document. He says, those words are my words. And because they've been sealed up and that seal hasn't been broken, you know that no one has changed them. And you know that if I am the great royal king that I am and think I am, I'm able to do what I said I'll do in that document. That's the language of signs and seals, pledges and guarantees. Bread and wine. Not just a foretaste, but a taste. Because God has touched us. He's present. He's dwelling with us. What has been said and promised will actually come to pass. How do we know? You see in the, the prayer next week, as Paul continues in chapter 1, that it's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, bloody, beaten, crucified, dead, is lowered from the cross, wrapped in the grave clothes, put in the tomb, and he defeats death. That's the promise that we all have. Wherever we are at today, whatever sin, whatever conflict, the sorrows of that school in Nashville, Jesus has defeated death in the resurrection. And that's the power of the King who has sealed us a great pledge and promised inheritance. Let's pray. Merciful God, the fog of war is a real thing. We get disoriented, we get frightened. We hear loud noises. We smell smoke and death and decay. Obstacles rise before us. Traps open 
in our pathway. But we have a great king who has created a path through the wilderness. And he goes before us and he goes behind us. He seals his own presence and his spirit to us. We thank you. We thank you for these gospel promises and we praise that king for his work of deliverance, for saving us. We pray that you might fill our hearts now with the joy of that spirit and send us forth with thanksgiving and love that we might serve him, serve you and our neighbor. In Christ's name, amen.